Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we sing those words, come thou fount of every blessing. I wonder if we know that you are our faithful fount of every blessing. And Lord Jesus, you are faithful, just as you've promised to be present with your people when they gather together for worship in the power of the Holy Spirit. We expect you to be here. We know and trust that you are really present among us. Even in the words that I'm about to speak, Father, guard me from error so that your son Christ can speak. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through not my word, not anyone else's word, but the preeminent word of your son Christ. So speak, Lord Jesus Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, and bless us, Almighty Father, as we look into your word. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. In Christ's name, amen. One of these days, some simple soul, excuse me, children's worship, ages four and five, by the way. You're dismissed now to go into children's worship. As I was saying climactically, one of these days, some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. Then the rest of us will be embarrassed. Those memorable words were spoken by the great British revivalist of this past century, Leonard Ravenhill, who spent a great deal of his ministry urging people to trust God and trust his word like the great men and women of the scriptures did. I wonder what he would say to us this morning. Do we really believe God's word? Maybe that seems like an irrelevant question to ask a conservative Southern Baptist congregation such as we are. But when I ask this morning whether we believe God's word, I'm not asking whether we believe the historical events of the Bible. Nor am I asking whether we believe the certain foundational doctrines found in the Bible. I hope we believe that. We must. But when I ask you this morning whether you believe God's word, what I'm really asking is whether you believe that God is reliable and trustworthy. He has made good and precious promises to you, to each of you individually and to us as the body. Think, think through the scriptures, how many promises, how long would it take to count all the promises he has laid out for us in the scriptures? Are we trusting in him this morning? God's people throughout history have, to, have often struggled to trust in God's promises to them. But perhaps no time was as dark as when the people of Israel found themselves under the reign of King Ahab. Wicked king. A wicked king who led nearly the entire nation into apostasy and unbelief. And in our passage this morning, God sends his great prophet Elijah 
to demonstrate the great power and faithfulness of his good and precious promises to his people. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. Our passage for this morning will be 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 24. And if you're using the black hardcover Bibles that we've provided for you, that can be found on page 299. 1 Kings 17, page 299. Listen to God's word. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged, laid him on his own bed. 
he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. In the next chapter, chapter 18, we have the account of Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal to a duel of the gods on Mount Carmel. Remember his boldness and uh, audacity as he mocked his challengers for praying to a God who does not listen and cannot respond? Such faith does not come to men and women in a vacuum. Rather, it is divinely developed in a man whose faith has been refined by tests, much like the ones we've seen in chapter 17, which we have just read. Brothers and sisters, I want us to see this morning and be reminded that Because God is powerful to perform all he promises, we can trust and obey every word that comes from his mouth. Because God is powerful to perform all he promises, we can trust and obey every single word that comes from his mouth. Let's see how God says this to us as we make our way through the passage this morning. Look at the very beginning of our passage, verse 1, as the author brings us into the palace of King Ahab. Onto the scene, without warning, bursts Elijah, whose name means, My God is Yahweh, a bold prophet for a time of apostasy. Centuries later, the Jews living during Jesus' earthly ministry would remember Elijah as perhaps the greatest prophet of the Hebrew Scriptures, seeing him as one who mediated truth to an unbelieving Israel, just as Moses did in the book of Exodus. But Elijah was a nobody. He was a nobody. Look at what the author tells us about him in verse 1. He is a Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Translation, nobody has any clue where he came from. Scholars have looked and looked and looked to no avail and with no consensus for Tishbe. And probably the first readers of this narrative wouldn't have known anything about Tishbites or Tishbe either. Exactly. But the author's point seems clear. 
Elijah, the great Elijah, came from obscurity. He was a nobody until God made him a somebody. The great men and women of God come from humble beginnings. They wait patiently for the Lord and listen for his calling. And then they burst onto the scene and do great and mighty things for the kingdom. Many of us this morning come from humbles, humble beginnings, don't we? Some of us need to wait. Wait patiently for God's calling on our lives. Others of us have already heard from God. You've already heard from God. And simply need to trust and obey like Elijah. No matter how intimidating God's calling for your life may be. And Elijah's calling was certainly intimidating. He was called to confront King Ahab with God's judgment. You recall King Ahab, don't you? That vile toad who squatted upon the throne of the nation. Been wanting to do that all morning. I was so excited. R.G. Lee, anyone know R.G. Lee? Famous Southern Baptist pastor. That's how he described King Ahab. And such a description fits what the scriptures say about him. Look at the paragraph in your Bibles that precedes chapter 17. Notice verses 30 through 33. Chapter 16. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. Jeroboam, by the way, was an idolatrous king who came before Ahab. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What a toad. He takes a pagan, God-hating, prophet-murdering wife from Sidon named Jezebel. He adopts the pagan religion, the Sidonian religion of Baal worship. And plunges the entire nation into apostasy and full throttle idolatry. And it is to this vile toad king that God's nobody prophet Elijah barges in and announces with divine authority. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, plural, except by my Word. This was no arbitrary judgment. King Ahab had led Israel to go after Baal, whom they now professed to be the God of storm and rain and fertility. 
Except, of course, during the dry seasons when Baal had to submit to Mot, the god of death, for a period, and then have to be resurrected once again to bring rain on the earth. Senseless religion. So drought was no arbitrary judgment. This would be a great and historic demonstration that the Lord, the God of Israel alone, is the true and living God, and he submits to no one. His word alone is powerful to accomplish all he says, and with it, he will triumph over this satanic puppet of a God, just as he promises to do with all other false gods that threaten his glory and his beloved people. He smashes them into pieces on their own turf and exposes them to open and unending shame and ridicule. You want to play with rain? Let's play with rain. Bring it on. Don't you love that? That's what our God does. One other thing. Not only will the Lord triumph over false gods and win the praise of his people, but he will do so, and he always does, through a man whom he has sent to speak and act on his behalf. You see that last phrase of verse 1? Last phrase. Except by my word. Whose word? God's word in Elijah's mouth. Oh, Christian, God can do mighty things through you. Cross point, God can do mighty, mighty things through you. Don't you doubt this. Don't you doubt this. You are God's people. But we must trust and obey his word. Elijah would learn the importance of trusting and obeying God's word through three increasingly difficult tests. Beginning, test number one, the call to the wilderness. Look at verse two. And the word of the Lord Came to him. So you see where Elijah's authority is coming from, don't you? The only reason he can speak as the Lord is because he has first heard from the Lord. And what does the Lord command him to do? Verses 3 and 4. Keep your Bibles out, by the way. Verses 3 and 4. Depart from here. Turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. The Lord commands Elijah to flee from King Ahab's palace in Samaria, remove himself from civilization, and to hide in the wilderness. Now, were it not for the reliability and trustworthiness of God's word, this would appear to be a most dangerous and even suicidal mission. God's calling Elijah to live off the land in a period of indefinite drought. He has appointed two meager means of provision for his prophet. You got a brook and a bird, Elijah. 
But with both of these means of provision, there was a potential problem that required a miraculous solution. First problem. The brook wasn't one of those Alaskan rivers that we see on the Discovery Channel, flooding with rapids, teeming with salmon, supporting the entire ecosystem. You got grizzly bears along the banks. No, this is the Middle East, folks. Brooks like Kareth only contain water during periods of heavy rain. So don't think river. Think puddle. Second potential problem. The birds were ravens. Ravens were unclean for God's people at the time. Furthermore, ravens are birds of prey. They have a reputation of neglecting to feed even their own young, much less human beings. Yet in all these things, the Lord was promising to be faithful to Elijah. But would Elijah trust and obey? Verse 5, yes. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. Notice that Elijah's recorded response is described in nearly identical terms with the Lord's command. This was total trust, exact obedience. And did the Lord uphold his promise? When has he not? When has he not? Verse 6, the ravens came. Bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. He drank from the brook. The Lord's word was powerful to overcome every potential problem. As the Lord of the wilderness, his word can change the nature of the raven and protect his prophet from the raven's uncleanness. And the Lord's word can also make the brook continue to supply water for his prophet, even in the midst of drought. Until, verse 7, after a while, the brook dried up. There's no rain in the land. Sudden calamity had interrupted God's miraculous provision. We're acquainted with that, aren't we? Sudden calamity had interrupted God's miraculous provision. But the Lord would use this sudden calamity to strengthen Elijah's faith and propel him into his next test. Now the Lord would call Elijah to leave the wilderness and dwell in enemy territory. Notice verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Lord's word governs Elijah's life. Word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now what business would Elijah have in Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon? Jezebel was from Sidon. Baal, allegedly, was from Sidon. Out of all the places the Lord could have sent Elijah, why Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, the heartland of Baal worship? It's because here, the Lord will demonstrate to Elijah that Baal has no power. Baal has no territory. 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The people of the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24, 1. But the Lord doesn't merely cross boundaries for power's sake. He's not a megalomaniac. The Lord crosses boundaries for people's sake. Always. Look at the remainder of verse 9. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. This Gentile widow would have undoubtedly pledged allegiance to a false and dead God. But the Lord would use his prophet Elijah to step into the bounds of enemy territory, dwell there, and point this Gentile widow to the true and living God. Verse 10. He arose and went to Zarephath. Again, the response is described in nearly identical terms with the command. This was total trust. This was exact obedience. And look whom he finds. Still in verse 10. It's a long verse, isn't it? And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow, there she is, was there gathering sticks. Certainly it must have been a relief for Elijah to see the widow there so plainly. But again, Elijah sees a potential problem that would require a miraculous solution. Only the poor and the outcasts loiter, hang out at the city gates. This was not a fortunate and wealthy widow. This was an impoverished and starving beggar. So Elijah, perhaps fighting disbelief, begins to interview this woman to see if she's really the one whom God had appointed for him to provide for him. Really? Still in verse 10. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water. That I may drink. And she obeys. So far so good. So Elijah decides to up the ante a little bit. Verse 11. As she was going to bring it. Okay. He called to her and said. Bring me a morsel of bread. In your hand. But this request. Would immediately prove to be quite impossible. And even inconsiderate. We see why in the next verse, verse 12. She responds, as the Lord your God lives. Notice, by the way, her rejection of the God of Israel. She didn't say, as the Lord my God lives, as Elijah said in verse 1. As the Lord your God lives. So she somehow notices that Elijah ain't from around here. Perhaps from his prophetic garb looks kind of Israeli. And she notices him to be a prophet of God. And she begins to explain her situation to him. Look at what she says. I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour. Handful. In a jar. And a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in And prepare it for myself 
and my son, that we may eat it and die. False gods never deliver what they promise, do they? This is Baal's territory here. False gods never deliver what they promise. Pornography promises pleasure. Money promises satisfaction. Partying promises popularity. Popularity promises power. But they never deliver what they promise. These are the false gods in our own lives who abhor us. They hate us and make false promises to us that at the end of the day lead to destruction. And in this particular narrative, Baal was the false god. And this widow was prepared to die in her unbelief and take her son with her. But then Elijah announces to her God's miraculous promise. Verses 13 and 14. Do not fear. That sound familiar? It's a statement that often precedes good news in the scriptures. God's provision in the scriptures. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. <laughs> but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. He's high maintenance, isn't he? And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. The jar of flour shall not be spent. And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord finally sends rain upon the earth. Elijah is speaking God's word to this widow, promising that the Lord will provide for her every need. But first, she must trust and obey. And so what does the poor widow do? Against all parental instinct. Wonder who didn't get bread here. Against all parental instinct. Verse 15. She went and did as Elijah said. And was the Lord faithful even to this Baal worshiping Gentile widow? You bet. You bet. The text says. She and he and her household ate For many days. Now notice. Look at the next verse. Don't take your eyes off the page. Notice in verse 16. How once more. The outcome is described. In identical terms. With the prophecy. The jar of flour. Was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil. Become empty. And here's the point. According to the word. Of the Lord. That he spoke by Elijah. God's word is faithful. It is reliable and trustworthy. And sometimes God will put you and I in situations. In which the only thing we have to stand on. Are the good and precious promises of God. Is that you this morning? Friend you can trust God's word. I hope you will. So at this point, Elijah's faith has been tested in the wilderness and in enemy territory. But there's one final test. One final test through which he must demonstrate the power and authority of God's word. And that is the grave. Verses 
the grave. We read in verse 17, that sudden calamity once again interrupts God's miraculous provision. Look at verse 17. After this, after what? After nearly two years of God's faithful provision to this household, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Well, this is very unexpected. The same child whom the Lord saved from starvation nearly two years prior, God now allows to die. It's confusing. And the woman's response is not altogether unexpected. Verse 18, she brings her accusation to Elijah. What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Harsh, accusatory words. Grief often causes us to misread God's intentions and to forget God's goodness to us. This woman feels as though she has been victimized under God's moral microscope for two whole years. That all of her sins have been made known to him. And now she concludes that Elijah has only come to her in order to bring God's punishment on her house in a cruel and horrible way by killing her son. But such a misreading Elijah cannot accept. Verse 19. He said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. Why does he do this? Why does he take the woman's dead son, just died, away from her and into privacy? I think you'll see why. In the next verse, Elijah lays the dead child on his bed and cries, verse 20, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? God and Elijah, excuse me, Elijah intends to question God's motive and actions, however cautiously and respectfully, very much in the same way a good and trusting wife might question her husband's actions and motives. Away from the children, behind closed doors. Elijah is getting real, as we say, with God. Should the child remain dead, this is Elijah's argument, should the child remain dead, O God, Your name would be blasphemed. My calling as your prophet would be condemned. And the compassion our people speak of, of your your care for widows and orphans such as these would be doubted. What's Elijah doing here? He's urging God to keep his promises. 
And then Elijah does something puzzling to us. He stretches himself upon the child three times. It was a prophetic act that symbolized the transferal of life from a lively body to a lifeless body. And it was accompanied by a bold yet simple prayer. Oh, Lord, my God. Let this child's life come into him again. And then a most amazing thing happened. This next statement is the climax of the entire chapter. Verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. The response is recorded in nearly identical terms with the command. This is no surprise to us now. Just look at verse 21. Let this child's life come into him again. Verse 22, the life of the child came into him again. This is no surprise to us now, but there is a surprise. This time, the roles are reversed. This time, Elijah commands And the Lord responds. Friends, when we trust and obey God's word, we have VIP access into the throne room of Almighty God. James 5.16 puts it this way. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The storehouses of blessing are available to us. God himself listens to us and is eager to respond. He listens to those who live and are ordered by his word. Why don't we do this more often? Do you want encouragement? Do you want incentive to trust and obey God's word? Do it for the sake of your prayers. God loves to listen and respond to those who are trusting in him. So Elijah's prayer is answered. The dead child is resurrected. And God demonstrates that his word is powerful even over the grave where Baal, the false satanic puppet God, still lies powerless and dead. Elijah presents the resurrected child with joy to the mother. Picture it. See, your son lives. Look, behold, believe what God has done for you. And the widow now concludes, not with accusation, but with assurance. Verse 24. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. What do we have here? This, my friends, is a profession of faith. And I submit to you that this poor widow, through Elijah, the man of God, was converted at this very instant. She is declaring God's word to be true. And brothers and sisters, this is the very essence of saving faith. Declaring God's word 
his promises to be true. The very most important question you can ask yourself this morning is, am I trusting in God's promises to me? Particularly, those good and precious promises which he offers to us freely in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what have we seen this morning? We have seen that God's powerful word comes to us in our most dire of circumstances, in our grief, in our unbelief, and even in our sin. It confronts us. But what you must discover this morning is that God's word has not only come to you in letter only. God's powerful word has come to you in flesh. In the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the true man of God, whom the Father has sent to speak and act on his behalf. He left his palace in heaven for you. He entered into the wilderness of temptation for you and prevailed. He came to dwell in enemy territory for you and was crucified. He even went down into the grave for you and was resurrected. My friend, This is the most important thing I can say to you this morning. There is no boundary. God's incarnate word, our Lord Jesus Christ, has not crossed to make you his own. Will you respond to him and trust in obedience? And believer, when he makes his promises to you, that your sins have been forgiven, that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he loves you and will provide for you, that he is for you, not against you, and perhaps most notably, that his body was broken for you and his blood shed for you. Will you believe him? Or will you look to false securities and false gods who do not respond And cannot deliver. I urge you this morning. Trust Christ. The word of God made flesh. Obey him. Love him. For he who promises all these things to you. Child of God. Is faithful. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your your Holy Spirit searches our hearts. He applies the word of God to our hearts. He knows every single person in this room, ways they are lacking in trusting your good promises to them. Crevices in their soul which they have not given up to the Lord Jesus Christ and are are still holding on to false securities and false gods and they are numerous. 
I pray that you would deliver them through the power of your spirit, that you would call this great word of God in 1 Kings 17 to to mind, to remind them that your word is powerful and you will perform all you promise. Encourage us, Father, to trust and obey you for the glory of your name, the glory of your son Christ. Amen.